This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, the Australian Catholic Cardinal George Pell has died, his legacy disputed across society. We'll hear from advocates for victims who say, as Archbishop, George Pell oversaw the prolific sexual abuse of children. And we'll look at George Pell's legacy as a defender of conservative Catholic values who rose to high prominence in the Vatican itself. Conservative Catholics admired him and, and saw him as, as a champion of their positions and one of the most articulate defenders. And Pell was a kind of bruiser who took his attitude from the footy field right into Vatican politics. Thanks for your company. His supporters in conservative circles are remembering him as a saint for our times and a martyr. But for some victims of child sexual abuse, the death of Cardinal George Pell is only bringing more pain. Such is the polarising effect of Australia's highest-ranked Catholic cleric, even in death, just as existed throughout much of his highly successful and at times controversial life. The Archbishop of Melbourne says George Pell died of heart complications following hip replacement surgery. Oliver Gordon has been taking a look back at Cardinal Pell's 81 years. George Pell was born in 1941 in the regional Victorian town of Ballarat. The son of a publican father and a strict Irish Catholic mother, his towering physique helped him to become a successful footballer, playing for Richmond in the VFL reserves as a teenager. Any of the boys interested in the footy? But the call to priesthood was too great. Place ourselves in the presence of God our loving Father. Pell gave up football for seminary life and study in Rome. He was ordained as a priest in 1966. After studying at Oxford, he returned to Australia in 1971 and rose quickly through the ranks. By 1996, he was Archbishop of Melbourne, where he gained a reputation for his staunch resistance to progressive reform within the Catholic Church. We're not a bit anti-women, but we're not in favour of women priests. As well as condemning the ordination of women, he stood in opposition to abortion, divorce and homosexuality. We're aware that it does exist. Uh, we believe that it's, such activity is wrong. Pray, my brothers and sisters, as Archbishop of Melbourne, Pell established the Catholic Church's Melbourne response for addressing child sexual abuse claims. Some survivors of clerical abuse have suggested that scheme was primarily concerned with avoiding civil litigation and limiting compensation payouts. In 2001, Pell was appointed Archbishop of Sydney, where he continued to publicly express sorrow and regret to victims of abuse. Especially those who've suffered at the hands of fellow Christians. In 2003, Pope John Paul II appointed Pell to the College of Cardinals. His influence in the upper echelons of the church grew after his appointment in 2014 to oversee the Secretariat for the Economy, which effectively made him the Vatican's treasurer. But in 2017, Pell himself was charged with historical sexual assault offences and returned to Australia from Rome to face trial. He maintained his innocence when interviewed by police. What a load of absolute and disgraceful rubbish. But in December 2018, Cardinal Pell became the highest-ranking Catholic official to be convicted of child abuse after a jury found him guilty of abusing two choir boys in the 1990s. An appeal against his conviction failed in 2019, 
but Pal took his appeal to the full bench of the High Court, which quashed his convictions and set him free. The response to Cardinal Pal's death has been divided. Some have said their thoughts today are with the victims of those abused by the Catholic Church. Others, like former Prime Minister Tony Abbott, have paid tribute to Pell, labelling the late Cardinal a saint for our times. Prime Minister Albanese has acknowledged the news has come somewhat unexpectedly. This uh, will come as a, a, a shock to many. This was a, a hip operation and the consequences of it unfortunately have been uh, that Cardinal Pell has lost his life and uh, I express my condolences to all those who will be mourning today. Melbourne Archbishop Peter Comensoli has been asked what legacy he believes Cardinal Pell leaves behind. There probably has not been a churchman in Australia quite like the Cardinal. Uh, his response both within the Australian context and within international contexts uh, has been quite instrumental and uh, I think for many years to come that will be known and thought about and reflected on. Vatican correspondent for EWT News, Colin Flynn, recently met Cardinal Pell for an interview. I went to his uh, residence and uh, I interviewed him about his memories of Pope Benedict and I remarked to the crew when we were leaving that he seemed in good form, he was upbeat, he was vibrant, uh, joking as well. And um, that was the last time I saw him, just a few days ago. Flynn says Pell's priority was the believers and the people in the pews, rather than the sceptics. You could say anti-this, anti-that, and again, it depends on who you ask, because many Catholics will say, well, he wasn't anti-anything, he was upholding the teachings of the Catholic Church. Many of the conservative Catholics around the world, just as much as they saw Pope Benedict XVI as someone who defended the doctrine of the Church, the teachings of the Church, Cardinal Pell uh, was seen the very same. Actually, just a few days ago when I interviewed him, he made a comment where he said, uh, you know, some people call us uh, conservatives old-fashioned, he said. But he said, well, it's, it's hard not to be seen as old-fashioned when we're following the teachings of someone who lived 2,000 years ago. That's Vatican correspondent for EWT News, Colm Flynn, ending Oliver Gordon's report. Well, despite his prodigious rise and influence in the church, the latter years of Cardinal Pell's life were dogged with allegations of child sexual abuse and cover-ups. While the Cardinal himself was eventually acquitted of all charges against him, many survivors of sexual abuse still believe he failed to act in preventing abuse and bringing offenders to justice. Flint Duxfield reports. The allegations against Cardinal Pell date back to the 1970s and 80s when he served in the Victorian Diocese of Ballarat. It was there that he worked alongside the notorious priest and convicted sex offender Gerald Ridsdale, a man many say George Pell knew was an abuser but did nothing about. Cardinal Pell long maintained he wasn't aware of the scale of Ridsdale's abuse. I don't dispute the uh, good faith of the victims. All I would say is that Ridsdale has done other good things. Now, at that stage, none of us, or at least I had, no idea of the enormity of and the number of Ridsdale's uh, um, crimes. But in 2020, when the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse made its reports public, it revealed Cardinal Pell did know of Ridsdale's offending against children and had failed to stop him. It also found that when George Pell was an auxiliary bishop in Melbourne in the 1980s, he should have taken action to remove a violent priest who was allegedly abusing children. Judy Corton is a lawyer who represents victims of sexual abuse. Pell 
in his powerful positions as bishop first and then as archbishop and cardinal, he oversaw the prolific, prolific sexual abuse of children. And there has been absolutely no accountability for that. He was never charged with uh, concealing and cover-up. In fact, in Australia, we don't have one conviction at all of any senior member of the Catholic Church for, that, for the crime of concealment and cover-up. Alongside accusations that George Pell had knowingly covered up sexual abuse, also emerged allegations that he himself was an abuser. In December 2018, after a protracted trial, Cardinal Pell was found guilty of five charges of sexual abuse against two children in the 1990s, the most senior Catholic cleric in the world to be convicted of such offences. Cardinal Pell always maintained his innocence, saying the allegations were the product of fantasy, a load of absolute and disgraceful rubbish. His conviction was initially upheld in an appeal to the Supreme Court, but later overturned by the High Court in April 2020. His release from prison after more than 400 days behind bars, sparking claims from his supporters like Sky News' Andrew Bolt that the case against the Cardinal was a witch hunt. Shame on all those people who persecuted Pell in one of this nation's greatest miscarriages of justice. So shame on the state institutions which tried to destroy him. To destroy a man who was loathed by the left as a conservative and chosen by the mob to be the scapegoat for his church. For survivors of sexual abuse, though, Cardinal Pell's exoneration didn't necessarily change their opinion of him. Paul Levy was abused by Gerald Ridsdale in the 1980s and says for many survivors, today is a good day. Little bits of celebrations are going on in the survivor community, you know, because he's you know, got off being charged as a pedophile, but he definitely covered up crimes of a pedophile. While many will remember Cardinal Pell for his work within the church, other survivors like former Ballarat student Philip Nagel say it will ultimately be his lack of action on which he will be judged. In the end, he just re represented the, the lies of the church. That's what he represented, the, 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 the lie and defend and, and deny. And, and I can't see why he'd be remembered any other way than for what he was judged on in the end. That's sexual abuse survivor Philip Nagel ending that story by Flint Duxfield. And these are, of course, troubling matters, so if you find they disturb you or anyone you know, there is help available. You can contact Lifeline. The number is 13 11 14. Well, Dr Miles Pattenden is a historian and senior research fellow at the Australian Catholic University. He joined me earlier. Miles Pattenden, thanks for your time. How will history remember Cardinal George Pell? Well, I think history will remember Cardinal Pell as a, a very polarising figure. On the one hand, he's the most powerful Australian ever to have risen through the ranks of the Catholic Church, and he's an extraordinarily important public figure in Australian public life over the past 50 years. On the other hand, uh, there are many Australians who will remember him primarily for the trial that he stood uh, here in Melbourne in 2019 and 2020, and also for his wider response to the clerical sexual abuse scandal and crisis in the Melbourne Diocese. Looking at the other side of the coin, can you give us a sense of what it was about George Pell that made him so highly regarded that he rose close to the top of, of the Catholic Church globally? I think there's no doubt that George Pell was a man of extraordinary ability, um, administrative ability, political ability. Uh, when he needed to be, he could also be a man of great charm, I understand. You can see this is a man who wasn't afraid to 
identify problems and confront them and implement solutions to them, even if it meant treading on lots of people's toes and making many enemies. He was a man in essence, a man of action. Um, and of course, those people are very rare in all kinds of institutions. And, and actually, his skills in this area drew him to the attention of church leaders, first in Australia and then ultimately in the Vatican itself, because Francis recognized Pell as a fellow outsider who was someone who had the skills and the distance to take on the vested interests that undoubtedly exist in the Vatican and to try and reform the Vatican's finances and make everything a little bit more transparent. So did he have much success there? And, and did he make many enemies? Well, I'm sure Pell made many enemies. Um, the Vatican is as opaque as it has ever been on these kinds of issues, so we can't really know how much headway he made in those areas. But the only thing we might be able to point out to is that more has come to light about uh, Vatican scandals since Pell started his work. Um, it led, of course, famously to Francis stripping uh, cardinal Becciu of his of his offices and as his status as a cardinal in response to some of this, some of these financial scandal as you say he was a conservative figure even amongst his peers in the catholic church how did he go about prosecuting those views in a society that has been growing more and more progressive well one of the reasons why he has so many admirers amongst conservative catholics is he really didn't shy away from it he he shot straight from the hip and he said things bluntly and directly he didn't try to reach accommodation with his critics he spent most of his time just telling them why they were wrong the problem was that that wasn't necessarily a terribly persuasive way of winning more people over to his cause there are some who would say that he put the church itself ahead of of the people within it. Is that a fair accusation to make? Well, that's an accusation which is made against a great deal of bishops of Pell's generation and the generation before him, that um, they regarded the institution as paramount um, and they prioritised that ahead of any um, notions of justice towards those who may have been abused by uh, priests. And I think a lot of Australians basically accept that that narrative has some validity to it. Uh, and that, of course, is why one of the reasons why Pell um, found himself increasingly unpopular in wider Australian society as time went on. How does it compare to how he was viewed overseas in the Vatican and, and elsewhere throughout the Catholic Church? Well, uh, I think Pell divided opinion in much the same way around the world that conservative Catholics admired him and, and saw him as, as a champion of their positions and one of the most articulate defenders of them, and in a very different way to, say, someone like the late Pope Benedict, who died just two weeks ago, and that Benedict was this very softly spoken theology professor um, who didn't really like to confront about the differences in his opinion and those of other people, whereas Pell was a kind of bruiser who took the, the his attitude from the footy field right into... Um, Vatican politics and was, wasn't afraid to say when he thought you were wrong and and to to confront all kinds of, of people on issues where he had disagreements. And that was something which, which won him both admiration and the opposite. Miles Pattenden, great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. And Dr Miles Pattenden is a Senior Research Fellow at the Australian Catholic University. This is PM. I'm David Lipson. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Ahead, the biggest book release in years as Prince Harry's Spare hits Australian bookshops. We'll hear what readers are making of it. 
Well, last year was not a good year to be a tenant, with rental costs jumping more than they ever have before. A rise of 10% in 2022 as vacancy rates fell to historically low levels. Housing costs are also weighing heavily on inflation, increasing the likelihood of another interest rate rise next month. John Daly reports. Tasmanian retail worker Maddie Parsons didn't expect she'd be calling her parents' shed home in her late 30s. But the unforgiving rental market has put her there. I think that the challenges that I'm facing in making a shed livable are way less than the challenges of trying to rent in Hobart. While national home values are in freefall, rents are continuing to rise, though at a more modest pace. Rental values increased by a record 10.2% last year, and rents in capital cities are climbing faster than regional areas. The national rental vacancy rate also dropped from 2.1% to a historically low 1.2% in the last 12 months. Maddie Parsons gave up trying to rent in Hobart, instead opting for the shed in the Huon Valley. Um, I've certainly seen a lot of my sort of friends and people I know who are renting getting pushed further and further out from the city centre and, you know, moving into areas where there's not very good public transport or services or those sorts of things. It's noticeably worse and I think a lot of people have been noticing it for a long time and now we're actually seeing you know, starting to see reports and statistics that back up our experiences. For some, the rising cost of renting has had dire consequences. Kate Colvin is CEO of Homelessness Australia, and she says more people are needing support as a result of the rental crisis. Look, over the past year, we've also seen a 9.2% increase in people coming to homeless services because they're struggling with financial issues and housing crisis. So it is having a direct um, impact on people needing homeless services. Look, increasingly we're seeing um, this an issue that's really biting with low paid workers. So the minimum wage is $812 a week. You know, the median rent across the country is 519 That's 64% of the minimum wage. So, you know, you can see with that that it's it's pretty hard to keep up with rising costs of rents, even if you are in work. The rental outlook for the coming year is mixed. Rental value growth has lost momentum for the last two quarters, but a return to pre-pandemic levels of migration is expected to add more pressure on the market. Housing costs are also weighing heavily on the economy. New data shows rents and building costs jumped 9.6% in the last year, making housing one of the biggest contributors to inflation. The monthly consumer price index, or CPI, rose 7.3% over the year to November, which returns annual inflation back to an equal 32-year high after it dipped in October. KPMG Chief Economist Brendan Rin says it raises the chances of another interest rate rise when the Reserve Bank meets next month. Regardless of all of this information, that's still showing strong pressure within the Australian economy means that the RBA meeting uh, in February is certainly a live one. Beyond the February meeting, what's the expectation for Reserve Bank moves on interest rates? Obviously the $64 million question, but it's our view that we're coming close to the top of the interest rate cycle in Australia. So what that suggests to us is that if we don't have a cash rate movement in February, um, uh, we'll probably have one in March. And then the Reserve Bank will sit on its hands for a little bit of time. Um, by that stage, you'd anticipate to start to see the full effects of all the cash rate increases 
flowing their way through the economy. The other big contributors to the November inflation data were rising food costs, partly resulting from the floods, and rising fuel costs because of the return to the full fuel excise. The Reserve Bank will make its next decision on interest rates on February 7. John Daly reporting. Just one in every eight Australian workers today belongs to a union. And as membership continues to fall, union leaders believe it's now time for non-members to start paying their union dues as well. They argue workers who aren't in a union but receive the benefits of wage agreements negotiated by unions should be required to contribute to the costs through a bargaining fee. Some experts say that would bring Australia into line with other jurisdictions, but employer groups have dismissed it as a union cash grab. Gavin Coote reports. The cost of living crunch is showing no signs of easing and wages remain in catch-up mode. And it's thanks to collective bargaining, unions say, that pay packets have gone up at all. Wages aren't given, they're won. Uh, and they're won through workers supporting one another. Tim Kennedy is the National Secretary of the United Workers' Union, which represents workers in dozens of industries, including aged care, hospitality and early childhood education. Only 12.5% of Australian employees are now part of a union, an all-time low, and he thinks it's unfair non-union members are sharing in the benefits of collective bargaining. One way of understanding the current problem is that, you know, at Christmas, a lot of people like to get together with family and friends, and the way they generally do it is that they say to people, can you all bring a plate so we can feed everyone? And so we all make a contribution to make certain that everyone who comes to the event to celebrate being together is all fed. At the moment in collective bargaining, we have the equivalent of about 12 people trying to feed 100 people. It's not sustainable. Tim Kennedy is among a number of union bosses who want employees who aren't part of a union to be charged a bargaining fee. So simply what we're saying is, hey, if we get collective bargaining going, it's an expensive thing to do. If you get a benefit from it, maybe there's some other ways in which you can actually have a fair share so everyone who benefits from it contributes to it. Charging non-union members was outlawed by the Howard government, but it's commonplace in some other jurisdictions, including Canada and some parts of the US. Employer groups are dismissive of the idea. Jess Tinsley is the Deputy Director of Workplace Relations with the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. <laughs> well, I think this is a pretty predictable ask from the union movement, really. Uh, with union membership at historic lows, I guess the compulsory tax on working Australians is a great way to boost union coffers. But ultimately, this trashes employees' fundamental right of freedom of associations. At the end of the day, Australians have the right to either choose to join a union or not. Um, and Australians really aren't going to cop paying a compulsory tax to unions for services they didn't ask for and they don't want. Um, and if unions are providing such a great service, um, why are union membership rates declining? If they're providing such a good service, then we should see um, Australian employees signing up in droves. We wouldn't see this, these historic low um, union membership fees. You know, um, a union shouldn't need a compulsory service fee. You know, th this is ultimately just a cash grab from the union movement. The industrial relations landscape has shifted dramatically in recent decades. It wasn't until the mid-90s that compulsory union membership was banned. University of Sydney Associate Professor Chris F. Wright, who specialises in industrial relations, thinks unions remain as relevant as ever. But what happened in the 1990s and 2000s is that we had that legitimacy of unions as the main organisations representing workers being challenged by the Howard government. And I think that that was questionable. There was, there's no other organisation out there really that does what unions do in advocating for workers. And you know, protected workers are good for the economy and good for society, I believe, too. 
Not everyone in the union movement is so enthusiastic about the idea of charging non-members a bargaining fee, though. The peak body, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, says it's not pursuing change in this area at this time. And it's focused on supporting workers to use laws passed last year which allow multi-employer bargaining to improve working conditions. Unions New South Wales supports the idea, though. Its secretary, Mark Morrie, says it's just one of the ways unions would be able to tackle dwindling membership. The workforce is growing at a great rate and the jobs that we have today and the jobs we'll have in the next 20 years uh, aren't the jobs that some people are working in. Uh, as a union movement, we need to change and adapt. Uh, we certainly need to focus on the feminised industries which are growing at a great rate or not, but also having, uh, I suppose, a product that people feel are worthwhile. So... We have to adapt what we're doing to be relevant of the workers of today and tomorrow. Workplace Relations Minister Tony Burke's office has been contacted for a response. Gavin Coote reporting. Prince Harry's highly publicised and some might say anticipated book Spare is now on sale across the world and to promote it, Harry is continuing his media blitz, even downing tequila shots on a US talk show. Although many of the more juicy revelations in the book were leaked to the media last week, Harry's publisher says the biography has become the fastest-selling non-fiction book ever. Booksellers in Australia say it's also flying off the shelves. Our reporter Catherine Gregory went to one in Sydney to check it out. Prince Harry's face is the first to greet you when you enter Dimmick's bookshop in Sydney CBD. His biography, Spare, on display, front and centre. It's crazy. That's all I want to... Just, it's crazy. And some shoppers are very keen to nab a copy for all sorts of different reasons. After hearing of all those four interviews on TV, snippets of it, I just want to see what he has to say. I'm going to believe it, but... And are you surprised by how popular the book is? I didn't think it would be as popular. Actually... I thought people would be lying down the street, but then I thought, no, you talk to people and they're like, no, it's just trash. And uh, have you been waiting for the release of this book for some time? Have you been anticipating it? No, I think so, yes. Yes, because of all the bit of advanced publicity. And Are you a fan of Harry? No, no, I'm not a fan of Harry. <laughs> it's a kick in the bum. <laughs> and what's making you buy the book then? Curiosity. I think it, it, it always sells well. So, you know, the royal family, doesn't it? And then there are those shoppers who are quick to say they're buying the book for someone else. I'm buying for my girlfriend's mum. Yeah, she's obsessed with the royals. What about yourself? Are you interested in reading it? No, not in the slightest. Why, why is that? <laughs> I just have no interest at all in them or anything they do. It's from uh, my mother. <laughs> Maybe a bit for you? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'll borrow it from her after I... When he was younger and I lived in England during the time that everything happened with his mother. Um, it's just, it'd be fascinating just to see, read it through his eyes and his voice instead of the media. Spare has only just been officially released internationally and according to Prince Harry's publisher, no other non-fiction book has sold so many copies so quickly. In the UK, it reached 400,000 before the day was done. At home, 
the expectations are high. We knew it was going to be big. John Page is the general manager of Dimmick Sydney. Definitely met expectations. We, we ordered over 2,000 copies for the store for today and we're going to go through at least half of those, if not more. So um, it's probably been the biggest um, release we've had in the industry for about five or six years. How do you think it compares to other royal biographies that are sold? Oh, above and beyond. So they, they do sell very well, but normally in the couple of hundred copies over a week. This is this is on the next level. But John Page says Dimmick's social media page has also been inundated by a fair bit of negative commentary about the book too. There's no doubt that it and Prince Harry's media blitz, including he and Meghan's recent Netflix documentary, has been very divisive. Just this afternoon, Australia time, he appeared on America's The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and already the media is reacting to this scene. Would you like a cocktail before we begin? <laughs> yes, please. I hear you like tequila. Yeah, let's go tequila. Let's do this. Harry's relationship with the media is a big part of the book, and he addresses that as well as how the press dealt with the impact of the book's leak with Stephen Colbert. Unfortunately, due to those leaks, uh, the British press... <laughs> which are central to so much of my story in my 38 years up until this point, they intentionally chose to strip away all the contacts and take out individual segments of my life. Buckingham Palace has so far not commented on any of the media appearances and the book. Giselle Bastin is an Associate Professor of English at Flinders University and she studies the House of Windsor. Having you know, done a lot of work on earlier royal biographies, we had the Diana years with her book with Andrew Morton and she regretted having participated in that book. Almost as soon as it was let loose, she got cold feet. So I was surprised really that Harry would grow up thinking that this was really a fantastic idea. But I think it shows that he's probably so much inside the bubble, uh, of the media bubble, that he thinks it's his only way of communicating who he is. And what do you think happens next? Well, the rumours are Meghan has got a book and there may be another one from Harry, I don't know. If he needs to keep getting funds, I mean, he would have an endless supply of stories he could tell about life behind palace curtains. And relationship with the family is so broken He's really got nothing to lose but to keep telling his story. That's royal expert Giselle Baston ending that report by Catherine Gregory. That's the program for today. Thanks for joining us on PM. I'm David Lipson. You can catch the program live or later on the ABC Listen app. And you can also head to the PM webpage for our reports to share. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.